Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. So how many of you, while you're getting your Bibles open, while I'm getting my Bible open, how many of you have heard of Armageddon? Have you ever heard that word, Armageddon? What in the world is Armageddon? Often in popular movies in our culture, Armageddon is the end of the world. It's the destruction of everything that we know. The interesting truth is that Armageddon is only mentioned one time in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. But when we put that reference together with things that Peter says here, that Paul tells us, that even Jesus said when he was talking about the last days, we get a pretty good picture of what Armageddon is. The word itself actually comes from a Hebrew, a, a couple of, of Hebrew words, the word har, which means mountain or hill, and Megiddo, which is a place in Israel where there were constant battles. It was one of those places where when the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even the Egyptians were coming up from the south, this would be the place where the Israelites would try to block invading armies from getting any further. And as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that there are references and references to big battles that happened on the plain of Megiddo. We don't really know of any specific reference to a mountain called Megiddo. Megiddo itself was a plain where battles were fought. So what we have to do to understand what Armageddon is based on this reference is to look at these other passages. And I wanna show you a couple of these other passages and we'll start with one from 1 Peter 5. So take a look at 1 Peter 5 and uh, look at verses eight and nine. You can find it in your notes if you just flip over the page on the second side at the top. I'll read from my Bible. It says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Notice what Satan is called here. He is called by a name that would indicate that we are at war with him. He's called our enemy, the devil. And so it, it has to be clear, first of all, that there is a very powerful, worthy of deep respect enemy that is coming after us as the church collectively and also as individual Christians, because he's upset and angry. God has vanquished him through sending his son, Jesus Christ. But as long as he's given chance, because also for Satan, misery loves company, 
He's going to be coming after us and trying to get us to suffer with him forever. The Apostle Paul, not just Peter, also makes it clear that there are times when he will attack and we have to be ready for those attacks. So I'm going to put up on the screen Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll, I'll read that. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The enemy is plotting your downfall. That's what Paul is saying. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, we, we tend to love the tangible. And when we're going through rough patches in life, at work, in our family, there is a tendency to make the other person our enemy. Our wife all of a sudden becomes our enemy. Our children become our enemies. Our boss becomes our enemy. Our employees become our enemy. What's Paul saying here? There's a spiritual war going on. There's an Armageddon going on in all of our lives because Satan, the devil, our enemy, is scheming and plotting against us. But these people that may become chess pieces in that war, they are not the true enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a side of life, a spiritual, heavenly realm side of life that you and I cannot see. But Paul says it is as real as this music stand. And that we have to be aware of it because this is where the battle of Armageddon is being fought against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, therefore what, what do we do? We put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And then I'm going to read one more because this comes directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. And then we'll go on. This is all just to say we have to understand we are in a massive war right here, right now, today. And Jesus points out what that war is going to look like in our lives. So look at Luke 21, verses 16 to 18. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Even the people who are closest to you will turn on you, Jesus says. If you've got a Bible like I have, you can tell it's Jesus. The, the letters are red. Everyone, everyone will hate you because of me. But then Jesus makes a beautiful promise, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. 
stand firm. And that's going to be a big theme today, the importance of standing firm and how we stand firm and what it looks like individually and collectively for the church to plant its feet and resist our enemy, the devil, fight back and win the day when in fact it's already been won because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But with the Holy Spirit's power, we must stand firm in faith and remain rooted in Christ's death and resurrection and in his grace. So I want you to fill this in. Number one, in these end times, the church must be ready for spiritual war. In these end times, the church must be ready for spiritual war. Are you ready? Do you understand that even your closest friends and family members may turn against you in this spiritual war? What's interesting to me is I think the early church got this very well. In fact, do you know the origins of a traditional church design? I think if you've been in a traditional church, you've seen that it looks nothing like this auditorium. This auditorium is designed the way it's designed because people want to have a chance to be able to see. We want them closer. We want them spread. This is all about speaking and learning. That's why this set up in an auditorium like this. But most churches, especially older traditional churches, are long and narrow, aren't they? You know what the origin of that is? It's kind of an interesting origin. In, in the early church, when they built a church, the place where you worship, they, they began to call that the nave. When you, when, it, when you went into the place of worship, you entered the nave. What does the word nave sound like to you? Navy. And in fact, the Latin word navis means ship. And a navis longa, long and narrow, was a warship. That was the shape of a warship. And so when the early Christians designed their church and began to call it inside the worship space a nave, what they were really saying is, We as a congregation are the crew of a warship. And by the way, there was a second very common type of boat in the Roman Empire. Uh, That was called the Navis Honoraria, which was a, a, a ship for hauling stuff, a cargo ship. But guess what the shape of that ship was? The shape of that ship was this. It was like a big basket, short and squat so it could carry a lot of stuff. The fact that they designed the nave of the church to look like a warship tells you something. They knew that by becoming a Christian, they were not getting on an innocent cargo ship, and certainly they weren't getting on a cruise ship. They were boarding a warship. They were the crew, and in fact, in ancient documents, you can even find uh, references to the fact that they considered the pastor the ship's captain. 
that they recognize that on any warship, there's an importance that comes along with leadership in the church. And that, in fact, if we are going to fight the battles that we need to fight in Armageddon, in the spiritual war against Satan at the end of the world, then we're going to need to be prepared for battle. And I want you to see what Peter says. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. So first of all, he's saying, I'm an elder and you have elders in your congregations. And an elder was nothing more than a leader. Typically, they were called elders because the leaders were a little bit older. Not always, though. Paul Paul writes to Timothy, who is an elder and an overseer in the church, and he tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise you because you're young. So this is really a reference to leaders, to the leaders among you. Here in our church, just so you can kind of put yourself in position, we would think not just of the pastors and the staff, because he's going to reference how the leaders shepherd. So for us, the shepherds of Crosswalk would be people like our growth group leaders who lead people spiritually during the week and throughout the week as as they're doing life together. We actually have a body of, of people who tend to the spiritual care of our people called elders. It would include them. It would even include those who lead teams of volunteers because one of the things that we're having trainings today between services and over at Cesar Chavez Library, and one of the things the trainer will be saying is, this is not just about getting work done. Your volunteering is not about getting work done. It is about getting people done. We use work as one of our most common sayings. We use work to get people done. We use the the work of volunteering to help create the community and the opportunity for biblical discussions because we're working together. I think you all know how guys are especially. If I'm going to get deep about what's going on in my life and, and ask you for help from the Bible on that, I better be sitting in my pickup truck with my eyes that way and my hand on the wheel, and you can kind of talk to me over here because I don't want to have to look at you in the eye while I'm having a deep conversation. It's just embarrassing for me as a guy. Now, women can do it a little bit better often, and men with some training can do it too, but we're most comfortable getting to know each other when we do work together. And that leads to the deeper spiritual conversations that grow us in our faith. So this is is who Peter's talking to even today, the leaders of the church. I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. 
We talked about Christians being on a warship. That's one picture. Peter uses a slightly different one here, doesn't he? He he talks about the leaders as shepherds and the members as their flock. And what he's saying is, when you lead, and, and leaders matter, Peter is saying. Leadership is important in the church. Never dream that the church can get by without leadership. A warship can't get by without leadership. Sheep can't get by without leadership. Every church needs leadership, but he also says, when you lead, lead with massive care in your hearts. As a shepherd cares for its flock, as the great shepherd Jesus first cared for you by sacrificing his life on the cross to to earn the forgiveness of sins, he did that because he loves us. And he's saying, when you lead, Lead as a servant leader. Because if if you want any example of what leadership in the church, Jesus even said it. He said, if if any one of you wants to be great, he should get at the end of the line and be a servant and be the slave of all. What does servant leadership look like? I love how Peter goes into that. Do you see this here? And he gives us four points of how I as a pastor should lead of how the staff should lead, of how our growth group leaders should lead, of how our ministry team leaders can aspire to lead. So number one, servant leaders are thoughtful leaders since this is God's flock. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Notice what's going on. Inspect. Take a look around. Do you hear of things, see things? Is there a a sheep wandering off? Is there a sheep stuck in the midst of a bramble? Is there a sheep that needs a little bit more food because it's getting crowded out as the sheep crowd for the food? Is there a sheep that's sick? Watch over them and notice, be thoughtful leaders because this is not your flock, this is God's flock. That's number one. Number two, servant leaders serve out of free choice, not obligation. Peter says, not because you must, but because you are willing. Can I tell you right now that this one is so important? Not because you must, but because you are willing. Right now, in Midtown, to get launched, we have 50 volunteer positions that need to be filled to get Midtown off the ground. That's just how our church works. We we are volunteer intensive. And I have to keep reminding myself because there's this little voice is going, how are we gonna launch unless we can get those positions filled? But I have to keep coming back to this and going, what kind of shepherd are you gonna be? Are, Are you gonna wait on the Lord? Are you gonna present needs to the people and and make sure people know what those needs are, but are you then going to back up and back off and make it clear that we don't want you to serve because you must, but only because you're willing? The service that pleases God, which is ultimately the service that we want, 
is not the kind of service where another human being who calls himself a shepherd or a leader is bending your arm behind your back. And I, I don't necessarily even mean physically. I, in fact, most of all, I don't mean physically. What I mean is how spiritual leaders can sometimes say things in a certain way that makes you feel obligated. And Peter says, this is a worship. And every one of you has a position on the worship. And yet, if you're here because you feel forced to be here, that is never the kind of service that God wants. Number three, care about what they give, not what they get. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Servant leaders think to themselves constantly, what do I have to give? What, what gifts, what abilities do I have to give? If they have possessions, they think, how can I steward this in a way that says, this is God's house, this is God's truck, this is God's money, and I want to use it generously so that others can benefit by hearing the gospel and be saved from their path of headed to hell and get them on the path of headed to heaven. And so we're concerned as, as, as servant leaders about what we can give, not what we can get. And finally, we don't lead by force. This kind of comes back to the earlier point. We lead by example. Paul says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Can I tell you, leaders have to be especially careful? Because when you are a leader in the church, people put a different weight on your words. I, I will tell you that in our Midtown Growth Group, for example, I've, I've teased a couple, a couple of times about joining the Midtown launch team. They're there for the group for now. And my wife and I had the conversation on the way from the Midtown Growth Group one night of, I think you might be carrying the teasing too far, Jeff. Because as leaders, if you're a growth group leader, if you're a ministry team leader, not lording it over is not about your intentions. Not lording it over is about monitoring how things come out of your mouth. You may well have the best of intentions, but if you as a leader don't recognize the weight that your words carry, you're gonna find you're alienating people and they're going to be serving out of obligation, not willingly. Now with my personality, I constantly need Julie to remind me of this. Because I am very direct. And when I feel something is good, I my winning others over thing just kicks in and I have to back off. Maybe some of you do too. And so this is Peter's encouragement. We need leadership in the church, but we especially, especially need servant leadership in the church. So here's your fill-in. In spiritual war, leadership matters because faithful leaders are critical to our final victory. Do you see what that last verse says about critical to victory? And when 
the great shepherd, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Make no mistake, leadership is critical to victory and especially eternal victory. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I want you to underline a couple words. Up high on the, on the first line, underline the word submit. Second line, underline the word humility. Fifth line, underline the word humble. And sixth line, <laughs> underline the word humble. See, it's not hard to see what Peter is saying here. That while leadership may be critical to victory in the church on this warship that we call the church in this flock that we call the church, as critical as leadership is humility. And I, I'm gonna tell you, there's a story on humility that just stuck in my head for years and years. I actually had to go back because I hadn't thought of it in a little while and review it, but it's a story about Abraham Lincoln. And, and many of you may have heard, because it's in a lot of leadership material, about how, how uh, persevering Lincoln was and how, how he had all these defeats before he finally got elected in 1860 to be the president that would fight our country through the Civil War, one of the most challenging times in the history of our country. So you may have heard about his political defeats, about the loss of his sweetheart when he was a young man. He went through a lot of stuff. But there's one specific story that just, it so shouts humility that I, it stuck with me. Maybe it'll stick with you too. Abraham Lincoln after you know, these ups and downs, had gone back to Springfield, Missouri to, to uh, his law practice. And one day, this guy shows up at the front door of his law practice, raps on the door, and walks in and says, can I talk to you? And as they sit down, Lincoln realizes this guy is coming to hire him to be a lawyer for one of the most nationally famous legal cases of his day. It was a legal case about the McCormick Reaper, which was a pretty new invention at that time. And so people were starting to imitate because it was very successful for farmers. And we were an agrarian society in the 1860s. So this was huge. And the guy said, I will pay you a $500 retainer if you will join the legal team. And then later on, I'll pay you the rest. $500 alone was more than double any fee that Abraham Lincoln had ever been offered for his legal services. So he liked the fact that this was a case that had some notoriety. He liked the fact that he was going to be paid very well, so he accepted it but apparently he didn't dive down into the details of how this was going to work because when the case came up for trial in Cincinnati, Ohio, Lincoln went there, he traveled there, thinking that he was the primary attorney. But when he got there, 
there was another gentleman there, and in fact, another gentleman after that, and Lincoln found that he was not the first string quarterback or even the second string quarterback, he was the third string quarterback. And so when, when he got there, the first thing the client did was introduce him to, as, as you would, the first string quarterback on the, on the legal team, a guy by the name of Edwin Stanton. When Stanton laid eyes on this country bumpkin attorney that was Abraham Lincoln, he said some of the, the, the cruelest words. I'm gonna, I, I just think I have to read them exactly. This is what he said, pointing to Lincoln. What's he doing here? Get rid of him. I will not be associated with such a gawky ape as this. If I can't have a man who is a gentleman in appearance associated with me, then I will leave the case. I won't be the attorney anymore. Can you imagine? And he, Lincoln overheard Stanton say those words. He pretended not to hear. And so there he was on the legal team. On the day that the trial actually came up, the attorneys were, of both sides, were introducing. Lincoln was not introduced. When, when they sat down, the legal rules of the day were that only two attorneys were allowed to speak for a case. Lincoln was the third-string quarterback, and he had come to Cincinnati thinking he was the first-string quarterback. Stanton made it clear, and so did the second attorney, because they kept exchanging glances at critical moments when, when Lincoln was saying something, and Lincoln picked up on it. Finally, Lincoln said, I, I think my services really aren't needed here. And he said, but I did, I spent a lot of time and effort creating this legal brief. I'll leave this here for you. I'm, I, remember, the theme of this is humility. So, so he... He, he leaves the legal brief there and he walks out and he's standing on the courtroom steps like this and he's thinking to himself, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, he's feeling very lonely. And then he thinks to himself, you know, but that $500 was the most anybody's ever given me for a legal case and he's a, a, a man of great integrity. He said, I can't just walk out. So Lincoln made a U-turn, went back into the courtroom, but did, this time did not seat himself at the defense table, sat himself in the gallery and listened as the case went on. I, I can't imagine, like, oh my goodness. Well, it came time for Stanton to get up and present his argument. And Stanton gets up and it turns out Stanton is a brilliant speaker. And he gets up and he is eloquent, point after point after point that he makes destroys the argument of the opposing case. And they end up winning the case. That evening, Lincoln's taking a stroll with a friend. And, um, and, and he says, man, that guy, he truly is brilliant. I, I could never measure up to the way he can speak, his knowledge of the law, like just no way. But then he said to his friend, he said this, but you know what I'm gonna do? I'm going back home 
and I'm going to study law all over again. And I'm going to study how to be a better speaker. Those guys from the east, like Stanton, they're coming out here to the west. And if I can't measure up at least somewhat to that, my legal practice is destroyed. I'm going to go after it. And he became very determined. The interesting thing, and kind of the twist at the end of this story, is that Lincoln received a a further check for $2,000, so a total of $2,500. He actually returned the check for $2,000. He felt he couldn't accept it, being a man of integrity and being humble as he was. But the guy sent it back to him. And that $2,000, which made $2,500, Lincoln split it with his law partner and ended up with $1,250, which ended up being the money that he needed to launch his campaign that would ultimately five years later end up in him becoming the president of the United States. That's one twist, and the second twist is, do you know who he hired to be on the cabinet? Stanton. And he became his minister of defense. His, his cabinet member that was one of the most prominent of all. Because Lincoln humbly could separate the Stanton who was a jerk from the Stanton who was brilliant. Stanton was standing by Lincoln's side when he died. And when he died, Stanton said about him, having now gotten to know him pretty well, there goes a man for the ages. Do you see what humility does? Here's what I I want you to, to write down. In spiritual war, humility matters because a humble attitude is critical to God's favor. Flip the page. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I'm gonna give you the fill-in. In spiritual war, sobriety matters because an alert mind is critical to resisting the enemy. We have to respect the enemy, Satan. And one way to for sure not respect how powerful Satan is, is to not take him seriously, and in fact, not to take yourself seriously enough. If humility is saying, don't take yourself too seriously, sobriety is saying, God has given you gifts, God has given you a brain. God has given you a purpose. You have an important position on this warship. Take it seriously. That's what sobriety means. Take your contribution seriously. Take yourself seriously because you must be valued in the eyes of God. Otherwise, why would he send his one and only son to die for you? I think there's another reason why Peter said this. And I think it's something we need to talk about. Number one, I do think Peter is saying, take your contribution and yourself seriously. God has you here for a reason. But number two, 
Back in Peter's day, there was an issue of physical sobriety. Sometimes we look at our, at our country today and say, things with drugs and alcohol and all of this have never been worse. We'll study the ancient Roman Empire and you will see they have certainly been just as bad. If you are struggling with actual physical sobriety, it may well be that you're self-medicating and you're in a considerable amount of pain and you need the alcohol or the drugs to numb that, and we can certainly understand that. That's exactly what Peter is talking about here, living in tough times through suffering. But Peter's also saying, if you waste your time being addicted, if you waste your time and your energy and your focus on alcohol, on drugs, on pornography, on video games, or whatever your addiction is, it means you're not taking yourself and your contributions seriously enough. We're on a warship. And we're fighting an enemy that is so powerful that if we don't respect him, he will crush us. So while on the one hand, serve with great humility and don't think too highly of yourself, on the other hand, over here, it, there's a balance in the middle. Live with sobriety and take yourself and your contributions seriously because God has you here in this church for a reason and a purpose. So write this down. In spiritual war, sobriety matters because an alert mind is critical to resisting the enemy. And here's kind of the final point. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Underline those three words, strong, firm, and steadfast. And underline, uh, underneath those words, I want you to write the word anchor. Anchor. To him be the power forever and ever. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. He says it a second time. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What message are you going to take home from today's, mess, from, from today's sermon, from chapter 5? Well, here's the message I don't want you to take home. Peter is winding up the entire book by saying, this is not... This is not all about your performance. The don't take the message from what I've written here in 1 Peter that you better do more or do better or perform at a higher level. That's not what this is about. What I want you to stand firm and stand fast in is the grace of God. The faithful, unbending, undying, relentless love and forgiveness of God. That's what grace is. And what he's saying is, 
You will not be able to do any of these things unless you can not work harder, but rest more firmly. I want to say that again. Peter is not saying work harder. He is saying rest more firmly in the loving arms of a forgiving God who sent his son Jesus for you. Trust him. Trust his love for you. Trust his forgiveness that it is real. You don't have to carry around a pile of baggage anymore as you're trying to, to, to row the warship or shoot at the enemy. That's been cut away from you. You're no longer with a shackle and a big metal ball around your leg as you're trying to fight Satan. Christ's cross and especially the empty tomb Rest in those. They mean God loves you faithfully. That's the message that Peter wants us to go home with. That no matter what's been going on in your life, no matter what struggles or sufferings you're going through right now, doesn't mean God doesn't love you anymore. In fact, it means the exact opposite. And if you are going to be a leader on this ship, and if you are going to be a humble servant leader on this ship, and if you are going to have a contribution to make and take that contribution seriously, it doesn't begin with you kicking yourself in the butt and beating yourself. It begins with resting more firmly in God's love for you. And by the way, it doesn't just begin there. It comes back to that love again and again and again daily. Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness won on the cross and guaranteed through an empty tomb. Write this down. In spiritual war, the grace of God matters most of all because God's grace is critical. It's critical to standing fast in, in faith. The reason I had you write that word anchor, we talked about how in the ancient church the, the, the picture of a congregation was a warship the picture of hope in Christ and of standing firm in that hope and resting firmly in it was an anchor. In fact, if you go back to the catacombs, you will see far fewer crosses written on the walls of the catacombs than you will see anchors. If you go back to ancient tombs of Christians, the markings, if it's early enough, will not be of crosses, it will be of anchors. Because what the Christians were saying is, on this warship, what helps us stay strong, firm, and steadfast is the sure hope of eternal life that Christ has given us because of his steadfast love. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your mercy and your love and your, your faithfulness to us. We're so grateful for sending Jesus to be the anchor of our lives, to keep us strong and firm and steadfast in faith. Lord, help us to rest more firmly in him and stop trying to earn everything by our own efforts or our own goodness or our own performance. It can't start there, Lord, and it can't end there. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I pray that this church would be a warship for the cause of Christ and that each of us would willingly and wholeheartedly step forward because you first loved us 
to fight the battles that will help others know Jesus so that one day we can also hug them in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Servant leadership is important. It's critical. Humility is important. Sobriety is important, but nothing, nothing, nothing is near to the importance of the grace of God. Read those passages, and here's what you're going to see. Peter started his entire letter of 1 Peter's pointing people to God's grace. And then toward the end in chapter 4, he said, by the way, that grace of God is meant for you, but it's also meant for others. You are stewards of God's grace, which means you're not just to receive God's grace, but you're to share God's grace. So I want to send you out challenging you, a big, big challenge. Take those notes home, read those passages, and hear this. God's grace is for you. You are forgiven, you are loved, and that is faithful love. Take it in and find someone to share it with. Let me send you out with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and grant you his peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. If you're a guest, come forward. I'd love to meet you.